Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 33, 1 Kings chapters 20 and 21. The king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, had been determined to attack the northern kingdom of Israel. And his motives were mostly geopolitical in nature because he sought to secure his kingdom, his southern border specifically, to extract and to extract wealth from Israel to bolster his kingdom. But as we saw in 1 Kings chapter 20, there was more at work here. For some inexplicable reason, there was a hatred of Israel deep in the recesses of Ben-Hadad's soul, such that he wanted not only to merely conquer and, and pillage, but also to humiliate. King Ahav of Israel was as weak as he was wicked. And so when Ben-Hadad marched his Syrian army to Israel's capital, Ben-Hadad sent couriers with his terms of surrender to Ahav, who was holed up in the defensive fortress that was Samaria. Now Ben-Hadad was essentially correct in his assessment that King Ahav would simply capitulate when faced with these risks. The first message sent to Ahav demanded that he and his family come under the control of Ben-Hadad and that much of Israel's national wealth be given to Syria as a tribute. To this, the king of Israel immediately agreed without so much as a protest or a counteroffer. But it is here that that dark place of irrational hatred for Israel stuck deep within Ben-Hadad is exposed when upon hearing of Ahav's acceptance of his terms he replies with another message that is probably not possible to be accepted. He demands free access to all of Israel to loot as he pleases. He, that he plans on deposing Ahav from the throne and that he's going to take Ahav's family away from him. To this, Ahav, of course, could not agree. So he went to his elders and to his clan leaders and they backed him up that this could not be done. Well, when Ahav sent back this reply of refusal, Ben-Hadad was furious and he vowed to, to lay the city of Samaria waste. But the Lord God intervened and then through a prophet he told the king of Israel that he would assure victory over Aram as unlikely as it might seem due to this vast army that Aram had amassed. Not only that, but the Lord would have 232 young men who had no military leadership skills lead this smallish group of 7,000 Israelite soldiers who were currently inside the walls of Samaria to go outside the walls and attack these gargantuan Syrian forces. And what was the Lord's purpose for doing this? Other than for the obvious of rescuing his people. Verse 13 says that it was so that King Ahav will know that I am Jehovah. 
In other words, the Lord is going to declare war against Aram in part for the purpose of driving the king of Israel towards Yehovah and away from all the false gods he's been pursuing. And miraculously, the Israelites routed Ben-Hadad's army and they retreated back to Syria. However, this didn't end the Syrian threat. A prophet made it clear that Ben-Hadad would come again after the turn of the year to try and alleviate his shame at being defeated by such a puny Hebrew army led by an inexperienced bunch of non-military men and a cowardly king. And they did come with an even larger force this time of 100,000 soldiers. And this new army was more prepared. It was more determined than the previous one. But the Lord once again intervened to thwart this attack on his people. And he stated two primary reasons for his intervention again. And those two reasons are stated in verse 28 of uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. It says there, at this point, a man of God approached and said to the king of Israel, here's what Adonai says, because Aram said that Adonai is God of the hills, but not a God of the valleys, I will hand over to you this entire huge army, then you will know that I am Adonai. So essentially, by defeating the overwhelming force of Syria's army, the Lord is going to display His glory, protect His character and His holiness by showing the king of Aram that he's not limited to operating in the mountains or anywhere else for that matter. And he's going to show the king of Israel that Israel's God is Yehovah and none other and that he's a deliverer. The army of Aram is once again miraculously defeated. It is crushed by the vastly outmanned Israelite army. And Ben-Hadad surrenders to Ahav. But in a display of foolishness that has caused many biblical scholars to scratch their heads for an answer, King Ahav befriended Ben-Hadad. He elevated him to brother status and then released him to go home to Syria. Let's pick up our story there. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to read from verse 31 to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 396. Page 396, we're going to start at verse 31. His servant said to him, Hear now, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. If it's all right with you, let's put sackcloth around our waist, ropes on our heads, and go out to the king of Israel, and maybe he'll spare your life. So they put sackcloth around their waist and ropes on their heads, and they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please spare my life. And he answered, Is he still alive? He's my brother. The men took this as a promising indication and they seized on it. And they said, yes, Ben-Hadad is your brother. And then Ahav said, go, bring him here. And Ben-Hadad went out to him and Ahav had him climb up onto his chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, I will return the cities my father took from your father. Also, you can set up markets for trade in Damascus, as my father did in Shomron. 
If you put this covenant in writing, says Achav, I'll set you free. So he made a covenant with him and set him free. And one of the members of the prophet's guild said to another one, by the word of Adonai, hit me. But the man refused to hit him. And then he said to him, because you didn't listen to the voice of Adonai, the moment you leave me, a lion will kill you. And no sooner had he left him than a lion found him and killed him. And the prophet went, into another, went to another man and said, hit me. And the man struck him a blow and wounded him. The prophet left and waited for the king by the road, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he called out to the king and said, Your servant was on his way into the thick of fighting when someone turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If he's missing, you'll pay for his life with yours, or else you'll pay 66 pounds of silver. But while your servant was busy with one thing or another, he disappeared. And the king of Israel said to him, Well, that's your sentence. You pronounced it on yourself. Quickly, he removed the bandage from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to the king, Here is what Adonai says. Because you have let escape the man I had given over to be destroyed, you will pay with your life for his life, and with your people for his people. The king of Israel returned home to Shomron, that rather the king of Israel returned home to Shomron resentful and depressed. You know, it kind of numbs the sentence, the senses. I think it bewilders us to try and make any sense out of what Ahav has done. Alfred Edersham wonders. It could scarcely have been due to the weakness of character when Ahav broke into almost joyous exclamation, Is he yet alive? Nor could it have been merely from kindness of disposition that he ostentatiously substituted, He's my brother, for the designation, Thy slave, Ben-Hadad, as used by the Syrian envoys. And C.F. Keel, well, he puts this mystifying matter this way. Although, therefore, this act of Ahav had all the appearance of clemency, it was not an act of true clemency, which ought not to be shown towards violent aggressors, who, if released, will do much more injury than before, as Ben-Hadad really did. But had uh, God had given the victory to Ahav and delivered the guilty king into his hands, that he might inflict punishment upon him, not he might treat him kindly... And Ahav, who had allowed so many prophets to be slain by his wife Jezebel, had no great clemency at other times. See, the only answer to this peculiar behavior from my perspective is that Ahav was totally sold out to evil. So he failed to do, perhaps he was incapable of doing, what was right in God's eyes. And instead, he did something that while irrational on practically every imaginable level, from the political to the spiritual, it seemed intelligent. It seemed good to him. See, that's what happens when we're led by a spirit of evil instead of by a holy spirit. What seems to us to be light is in fact darkness. What seems to us to be wisdom is in fact folly. 
we've seen this same kind of behavior displayed by Ahav caused by the same kind of mindset from an earlier Israelite king. In fact, it was displayed by Israel's very first king, King Shaul. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have an episode whereby God told King Saul to attack and to eradicate without exception the nation of Amalek. In 1 Samuel 15, 2 and 3, says, here is what Adonai Tzavot says. I remember what Amalek did, Amalek did to Israel. How they fought against Israel when they were coming up from Egypt. Now, go out and attack Amalek. Completely destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. Kill men and women, children and babies, cows and sheep, camels and donkeys. King Saul did what the Lord told him to do to a degree. But then at a critical moment, he did what he often did. He rebelled. And he did what, was, what seemed right to him in his own eyes. 1 Samuel 15, 8-11 He took Agag, the king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed the people, putting them to the sword. However... Shaul and the people spared Agog, along with the best of the sheep and the cattle, even the second best, and also the lambs and everything that was good. They weren't inclined to destroy these things, but everything that was worthless or weak, they completely destroyed. Then the word of Adonai came to Samuel. I regret setting up Saul as king because he has turned back from following me. He hasn't obeyed my orders. This made Samuel very sad so that he cried to Adonai all night. See, King Saul spared the king of Amalek. And King Ahav spared the king of Aram. But what is all the more similar in these two incidents is the grave action that Yehovah took against those two kings. Against Ahav, we hear this in 1 Kings 20, verse 42. Then he said to the king, Here is what Adonai says, Because you have let escape the man I had given over to be destroyed, you will pay with your life for his life, and with your people for his people. And against King Saul, we're told this in 1 Samuel 15, 10, uh, 10 and 11. Then the word of Adonai came to Shmuel. I regret setting up Shaul as king because he has turned back from following me. He hasn't obeyed my orders. And then finally this in 1 Samuel 15, 28. Shmuel said to him, Adonai has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today. He's now given it to a fellow countryman of yours who's better than you. You see, the problem was this. God had commanded King Ahav to make war upon Aram. Just as King Saul had been told to make war upon Amalek. Since God commanded the war and assured the victory, then this is the classic biblical definition of holy war. War that is led by Yehovah. War that is led by Yehovah operates under holy rules set down by the Lord that goes under the name of the law of Harem. 
or in English, the law of the ban. And the principle is this. The spoils of war always go to the victor. The spoils are everything from food to precious metals to cities and buildings to the defeated people themselves, including their leaders. And since God is the victor, when the war is a holy war, then to God goes the spoils of war. Now please note, not all war is holy war. War started by man, even justly inspired wars, don't make them holy wars. The Crusades, started by the church, were called holy wars, but they weren't. The only holy wars are the ones we see defined in the Bible. Having a war in God's name is not a holy war. Only God specifically ordaining a war makes it a holy war. The spoils of holy war are always put under the ban. This means they must be given only to God. They are banned from being given to the soldiers. They are banned from being used by anyone except God. Well, how is a spiritual God in heaven supposed to receive physical spoils of war? He re- just the same way he receives a sacrificial offering. The spoils are to be destroyed. In some cases, burned up. The captured men of a foreign army of aggression that the Lord God has ordered a holy war against are spoils of war, and thus they too are put under the ban. They belong only to the Lord now. Their disposition must be according to God's laws. And unless God directly gives a different instruction, these men and their leaders are to lose their lives. To do otherwise is rebellion of the worst kind. Because it means that humans have misappropriated, they've misused God's holy property. This is a high-handed sin. It's an intentional sin for which there is no atonement available. When God leads a holy war and He turns the army and their leader and or king over to Israel's king, the purpose is not for Israel's king to show them mercy, kindness, to make a peace treaty with them. The purpose is for Israel's king to administer God's prescribed and ordained justice on earth upon these enemies. The purpose is that these men and their leaders be destroyed. But in Saul's case, and in Ahav's case, they substituted their own idea of justice for God's justice. They chose mercy when God demanded destruction. And this is a real problem that not only the secular of the world has today, but Christians and Jews as well. We often rely on our own modern sensibilities, our own personal preferences, our own emotions, our own sense of fairness, our 21st century political correctness and our enlightened philosophies 
And instead of following God's justice system, we invent and we implement our own because we see our choices as better. That's exactly what Ahav did. It's what Saul did. And the Lord judged them severely for it. But even worse, we sometimes attribute our own personal sense of justice and fairness and mercy to God. We say that even though the Holy Scriptures say one thing, we're doing it differently because our hearts are telling us to do otherwise. And since Christ lives in our hearts, well, that it must be Christ's love overriding the Father's instructions. Nice earthly human logic doesn't much fly in heaven. So in our time today, even though the Lord says that the blood of murder victims pollutes the ground and that the murderer must be put to death in order for divine justice to be served and to cleanse the land from the blood of innocence, we say no. We say mercy's better. So we jail murderers. We even pardon murderers to go free if we think they've finally been punished enough. Then we're mystified when murder and violence increases day after day and our nation keeps descending further into godlessness and immorality and chaos. Modern Israel is fighting a God-authorized holy war. Israel's fight to stay in the land God gave to them is a God-ordained fight. The battle for Canaan has never ended since the biblical times. It won't end until God appears in person at Armageddon to lead that final battle. Thus, when an aggressive enemy invades and, and Israel confronts them, the enemy is to be killed because these enemy combatants are under the ban. When Israel captures terrorists on Israel's soil with Israeli blood on their hands, these terrorists aren't to be jailed and used for prisoner exchanges. They're to be executed because these killers belong to God. And Israel has no right to deal otherwise with God's spoils of holy war except to turn them over to Him by means of their destruction. But instead... Israel misappropriates God's spoils of war. Israel houses them, often apologizes to the world for holding them, and regularly releases them to show Israel's good intentions and merciful heart. And the violence against Israel simply escalates, day after day, without end. And this escalating violence is not because Israel has a problem with several enemies. They've always had that. But it's a problem they have with God. They are misappropriating His holy property. They're not behaving accordingly with it and they're experiencing the consequences of their disobedience. Well, back to 1 Kings 20. 
Verse 35 begins an interesting narrative about how God would send the message to King Ahab that what he did in letting Ben-Hadad live and in freeing him was going to be more costly than anything he could have ever imagined. Essentially, this is going to be a play that symbolically demonstrates God's verdict upon Ahab's foolish and rash action. See, the prophet's guild that is spoken of here is a translation of the Hebrew phrase B'nai Navim. Okay, and this literally means sons of the prophets. But this is an idiom. It is not meant literally. The idea is that there is this colony of prophets that, that, that the players in our play here belong to. There was a number of prophet colonies in existence at that time. Each one loyal to a chief prophet and to a set of God beliefs of some kind or another. This colony was obviously one that followed Yehovah God of Israel. This unnamed prophet tells one of his associates, Hit me! The other refused. And he was condemned for it because this was essentially a direct order from God. So the prophet went to another prophet from this, his guild and said to him, Hit me! No doubt the second man knew what had happened to the first man. <laughs> He didn't want to be lion food. So he was more than happy to accommodate this request. In fact, he struck the prophet with such zeal, it says that the prophet was wounded, which was apparently the idea in the first place. And the prophet in our play now gets into costume by bandaging a large part of his face so that he couldn't be recognized. And he stations himself along the road where King Ahav is expected to pass by. And sure enough, here comes the king. And the prophet shouts out a question that sounds to the king like a judicial case that he is supposed to decide and then render a verdict. And the basis of the story is that a servant was to hold a man for trial. And if this man was released for any reason, the servant would be held liable with his own life. But when the servant got distracted, his prisoner disappeared. And the prophet wants to know if he ought to be held responsible. And King Ahab replies, you pronounced your own sentence. Then the prophet dramatically unwraps the bandages over his smitten eye. The king recognizes him as a prophet of Jehovah. And now the prophet gives the king the meaning of his illustration. It says in Kings, 1 Kings 20, verse 42, Then he said to the king, Here is what Adonai says, <clears throat> Because you have let escape the man I had given over to be destroyed, you will pay with your life for his life and with your people for his people. Now if you were a Hebrew, <clears throat> excuse me, you would immediately see that this is unmistakably about God's law of the ban. Because you see, where most English language Bibles, including our complete Jewish Bibles, where it says, the man I have given over to be destroyed, what it says is, the man I have given over to harem, to the ban. So it's clear, this is all about the laws of harem. This is about holy war. And so here is a principle of God's justice that we must 
never think has ended with the turn of the page in our Bibles from the Old Testament to the book of Matthew. When a penalty is due to the Lord, it will be paid. When a life is due to God, a life will be taken. See, this is God's immutable justice. And although too many within modern Christianity have mistakenly come to, to picture Jehovah as a kindly New Testament grandfather or an affectionate papa, as opposed to the Old Testament God of supreme holiness and justice, he is not. He is king of the universe. He is the lawgiver. He is the judge who does not change. And he's not a man that he should change. His justice never wavers. And all that's due to him for violation of his commandments, it's going to be extracted. In fact, it's apparent from the verdict and the sentence upon Ahav that not only did Ahav release Ben-Hadad, you will pay for his life with your life, but the king must have also released many of the Syrian soldiers. And your people will pay for his people. There's a lesson here that I fear no matter how many times I and other Bible teachers tell it, there's those who just won't take it to heart. We confuse the commandment from Yeshua to love our enemies to mean that we're also to love God's enemies. That's not the meaning a typical way of speaking in the Bible era was to call someone who offended you. Mostly meaning to cause you shame or so you lose your honor. An enemy. But no matter whether this is a person who perhaps stole from you, slapped you, insulted you, or whatever, this commandment from Yeshua is speaking about our personal enemies. God's enemies are a whole other issue as King Saul and Ahav and so many others in Bible history learned the hard way. God's enemies are always to be our enemies. But our enemies are only rarely God's enemies. The king of Israel now understood what he had done. And he left knowing, oh, he was in big trouble. And of course, what we're seeing from Ahav is that he's pouting instead of repenting. He's a king. He doesn't like being called on the carpet and corrected. Not even by God. So he reacts like an impish child. We're going to see more of this behavior in 1 Kings 21. So let's turn there now. <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 21. A while later, an incident occurred involving Naviot the Yisraeli. He owned a vineyard in Yisrael, Jezreel right next to the palace of Ahav, king of Shomron. <clears throat> and Ahav spoke to Navyot and said, Give me your vineyard, 
that I can have it as a vegetable garden because it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you its monetary value. But Navyot said to Ahav, Heaven forbid that I should give you my ancestral heritage. And Ahav went home resentful and depressed at what Navyot the Yisraeli had said to him, since he said, I won't give you my ancestral heritage. <clears throat> he laid down his head on his bed, and he turned his face away, and he refused to eat. And Jezebel, his wife, went and said to him, Why are you so depressed that you refuse to eat? And he answered, Because I spoke to Navioth the Yezreeli and said to him, Sell me your vineyard for money, or else, if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard for it. But he answered, I won't give you my vineyard. Well, are you the king of Israel or not? Asked his wife Jezebel. Get up! Eat some food! Cheer up! I'll give you the vineyard of Navioth the Yezreeli. So she wrote letters in Ahav's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the leaders and notables of the city where Naviot lived. And in the letters he wrote, she wrote, Proclaim a fast and give Naviot the seed of honor among the people. Have two good-for-nothing men sit opposite of him and have them accuse him publicly of cursing God and the king. Then take him outside and stone him to death. And the leaders and notables of the city he lived in did as Jezebel had written in the letter she sent to them. They proclaimed a fast, gave Naviot the seat of honor among the people, and the two good-for-nothing men came in and sat opposite him, and these scoundrels publicly accused Naviot, saying, Naviot cursed God and the king. So they took him outside of the city and stoned him to death, and then he sent a message to Jezebel, Naviot has been stoned to death. And when Jezebel heard that Naviot had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up! Take possession of the vineyard that Naviot the Israeli refused to sell to you because he's no longer alive. He's dead. And when Ahab heard that Naviot was dead, he set out to go down to the vineyard of Naviot the Israeli and take possession of it. But the word of Adonai came to Elijah from Tishbe. Get up, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Shaman. Right now, he's in the vineyard of Naviot. He's gone down there to take possession of it. This is what you're to say to him. Here is what Adonai says. You have committed murder. And now, you are stealing the victim's property. Also say to him, here is what Adonai says. In the very place where dogs licked up the blood of Navot, dogs will lick up your blood. Yours. And Achav said to Eliel, My enemy, you found me. And he answered, Yes, I have found you, because you have given yourself over to do what is evil, from Adonai's perspective. Here, says Adonai, I am bringing disaster on you. I will sweep you away completely. I will cut off from Ahab every male, whether a slave or free in Israel. I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, like the house of Basha, the son of Achiah, for provoking my anger and leading, leading Israel into sin. And Adonai also said this about Jezebel. The dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall around Jezreel. If someone from the line of Chavs dies in the city, the dogs will eat him. If he dies in the countryside, the vultures will eat him. Truly, there was never anyone like Ahav. Stirred up by his wife Jezebel, he gave himself over to do what is evil. 
from Adonai's perspective. His behavior in following idols was grossly abominable. He did everything the Amorites had done, whom Adonai had expelled ahead of the people of Israel. And Ahab, on hearing these words, he tore his clothes, he put sackcloth on himself, and he fasted. And he slept in the sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Then the word of Adonai came to Elijah from Tishbe, Do you see how Ahav has humbled himself before me? Since he has humbled himself before me, I'll not bring this evil during his lifetime, but during his son's lifetime, I will bring the evil on his house. <clears throat> well, in our story, some time has passed since God's pronouncement of judgment over Ahav. And he seems to have heard pretty well forgotten this incident. It seems that Ahab's and Jezebel's favorite place to reside was not their capital city of Samaria, but rather their alternate palace in the, the, the beautiful and serene Jezreel Valley. And it was a fellow named Naviot whose misfortune it was that the king built his palace right next to Naviot's thri uh, thriving vineyard. And King Ahab decided that the land Naviot's vineyard occupied, well, that'd be a great place for a garden for his own personal enjoyment. The rest of the story has a, has a similar ring to it as when David looked down from his palace parapet upon the beautiful form of the stunning Bathsheba and decided he would try to seduce her and no doubt get her to leave her husband. But if she wouldn't, David would simply kill him, which he did, and make the whole matter academic. So King Ahab approaches Navot, offers to buy his vineyard, the land it occupied, or says the king, we can make a trade for the land, better land. You know, it's your choice, whatever you want to do. But Neviot replied in shock, Heaven forbid! Obviously, the king's not used to hearing no. But for Neviot, this was a very serious issue. Not only a pride and personal preference, but of Torah law. See, Neviot's land was in the tribal territory of Issachar. So it's safe to assume that Neviot was of that same tribe. Neviot refused the king because the land his vineyard grew upon was his ancestral heritage. It had belonged to his paternal fathers. And to sell it would be to violate the Torah in that one does not sell land out of one's tribe. The king was well aware of this. But the miracles of the two Syrian wars and even the pronouncement of the death sentence by the Lord upon him had apparently little to no effect on him. He was every bit of, uh, as evil as he'd always been. And what we're about to see is that the same king who showed so much unmerited and inexplicable mercy upon God's enemy Ben-Hadad, he was going to show none to Neviot, one of his own people. So King Ahab, a weak and double-minded man, thought mainly of his own comfort and his own desires. So now he was frustrated and angry at this sharp rebuke from a commoner, Neviot. 
So he goes to his palace bedroom, he lies on his bed facing the wall, and he refuses to eat. And Jezebel, knowing exactly how to handle this, acts like his mommy. Asks him, oh, what's wrong? He responds, that nasty man, Navyot, has insulted him, and he will not give him what he's asked for, and now I'm all depressed. But the queen, now she's made a different stuff. So she asks incredulously of her husband, Are you king of Israel or not? She tells him, Quit sulking. Get up, eat, because Mommy Jezebel's going to fix this and make it all better. <laughs> Jezebel was as frustrated with Ahav as Ahav was with Naviot. But now she had to figure out how to get that land from the unwilling owner. Or when word got around that Navot boldly refused the king without consequences, that was going to make her look weak as well. The answer is simple. Condemn Navot to death as an enemy of the state. Then confiscate the land as being forfeit to the king for his crime. But what crime shall we trump up against Navot? What will it be? Ah, she's a clever woman. So she writes some invitations in the king's name that are sent to the dignitaries, the leaders of the town where Naviot lives, asking them to come to a fast. Now notice, it says fast, not a feast. This isn't a party. This is some kind of a serious convocation concerning a matter that's going to be brought before the Lord. The idea was to create this this solemn setting that had a definite sense of piety and gravity to it. And Naviot would also be invited. He'd be seated in a place of high honor so that he was none the wiser that this was really all about him. Well, two worthless stooges, Ben Belial, they're called in Hebrew, they'd be hired to sit across from Navot and at the right moment falsely accuse him of cursing God and cursing King Ahab. Now since cursing God is blasphemy and in Torah law that brings the death penalty then Navot would be immediately taken outside and stoned to death. Problem solved. Leviticus 24 verses 15 and 16 Then tell the people of Israel, whoever curses God will bear the consequences of his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of Adonai must be put to death. The entire community must stone him. The foreigner as well as the citizen is to be put to death if he blasphemes the name. See, the great irony of all this is that this would actually be funny if it weren't so tragic. Here's a group of people who long ago began worshipping Baal and other gods, and generally abandoned Yehovah, but now they're accusing Navyot of blaspheming God, as though even if it were true, that would even matter to them. And how is it that he could be accused of cursing the king? Because according to the Torah, the king of Israel is God's anointed representative on earth. So to curse the king of Israel is to curse God, 
And to curse God is the curse is to curse the king of Israel. It's a double whammy. Well, everything went as planned. The two good for nothing men accused Navot of cursing God and the king. The law requires two witnesses at a minimum for a capital crime, and that requirement was satisfied. The city officials and elders who could judge such matters were already present since they'd been invited. God was also present since the entire gathering was couched as some type of a religious affair, hence the fast. Justice was sure and swift. The convicted Naviot was led outside the city onto his own land, actually. And with the two witnesses casting the first stones as required by Torah law, the others joined in. Naviot was executed. And we'll stop here and take this up next time.